Welcome to another impactful night of the Impact of Education Leadership. This is episode 70. I'm your host, ID3 for ID Judge on the third. Tonight's panelists are Rick Bollet and Buddy Thornton. Rick Bollet, please say hello to the people. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome. And Buddy, the positive social change agent pro, please say hello to the people. It is such an honor to be here, and we're ready to rock and roll into a new season. Absolutely, absolutely. What tonight's topic is coaching all students to go 100 and beyond. The influence of positive role models are necessary for adolescents, especially in economically disadvantaged communities. Adolescents located in both urban and rural communities need guidance and mentorship to build confidence, character, competence, commitment, and consistency. These are the vital skills that educators are expected to build in each of their students. And it is through their own influence that they make these steps possible. Influence is defined as a reflection of pro-social behaviors, dispositions, and core values that are internal and external in every environment with worldviews of self-identification, community identification, and external identification. Educators and researchers have used many teaching and learning strategies to effectively educate and assist teachers in understanding adolescent behaviors through mentorship programs and positive role model strategies that are evident in places like the churches, recreational centers, schools, after school programs, and other learning environments to help fill in this gap. Tonight we will have a discussion about coaching all students to go 100 and beyond. You know, first I want to introduce our guest. He is no stranger to the impact of educational leadership, and that is uh, Buddy Thornton, the Positive Social Change Agent Pro. Sir, can you just, you know, tell us a little bit about what you're doing currently before we go into uh, your question for this evening? Yes, uh, Isaiah, uh, thanks for the prompt. One of the things that I'm currently working on is completing some really solid tasks on digital presence because COVID has forced us away from our face-to-face interaction with our clients, our students, uh, our peers. We have to really stretch ourselves way beyond what we're comfortable with to meet the needs of the digital environment because of COVID-19. Everyone has to do that though, so we're not known as a stranger to that situation. The one thing that I focus on is to leverage what I have put together as an educational presence. I'm a doctoral learner at Grand Canyon University, uh, fighting with my committee chair on a daily, weekly basis. But uh, I do get a chance to interact in the uh, 
uh, work environment with parents and their children. And every day, it never ceases to amaze me how people are finding a way to overcome the COVID situation and the stressors that are there. So it's not always about me in this type of uh, environment. It's more about what can I do? And uh, my bio is wrapped around their results, not my past history. Thank you for that response. You know, tonight we brought you back on because, you know, we're going to be talking a little bit about, you know, social and emotional development, right? And we cannot have that discussion without talking about the voice, the student's voice, that child's voice, that that person's voice. How do they express themselves, right? You know, and, and what, are, what are their potentials? What are their pro- propensities uh, to make every action that they they endeavor purposeful. And so we wanted to bring you on because we wanted a, a, a real world um, perception with someone that's you know on the ground, that's in the battle, on the battlefield, and that's actually you know, doing uh, you know, what we're talking about here in this discussion, that's coaching. And so with that being said, my question for you tonight is, how do you express identity? How do you express your identity? And how do you express your identity in the workplace, right? To your clients, to your mentees. But then how do you use that? Or how would you use that to teach your mentees or your clients uh, how to level the playing field and the workplace and education, but primarily for students, how, what words would you give them? What do you have to say? How would you guide them to develop their own voice, to um, navigate on the playing field, if it were? So that's my question. Well, the first thing you have to really do is you have to understand that there's a lot of things in almost any environment, whether you're in a mentor-mentee situation, a teacher-student situation, a coach situation, all those situations really reflect down to what I like to call a relational dyad. Uh, You really need to, even in a classroom full of students, you really have to teach the students as if you're in a one-on-one conversation with each student. They have to be able to look at you and know that you care about their outcomes. To do that, you have to express an identity without stating the obvious. When you state the obvious, yes, you're the teacher, you're the coach, you're you're in control. They already know that you're in control. Children today, especially today, are extremely sophisticated. What they lack is experiential knowledge. They, they can't express things at the level that adults can because they just haven't been exposed to that much of the world. So when you want to express your identity to them, you have to get down to a basic level and explain to them that you're going to take your experience off the table to the point where you will share your experience and motivate them 
to go out and get their own experience, to express themselves what do they like, what do they want to learn, how do they want to learn it. You have, as a teacher especially, you have skill sets that you can hit the different types of, of teaching. You don't, you don't do everything verbally. You don't do everything kinesthetically. There's a lot of different options that teachers have. But when you are expressing your identity, your first identity, the very first identity is you have to be a pilgrim. You have to be the rock that they can put their feet on and they know that you're going to be there, not for you, but for them. Then you need to challenge the collective. Treat them all equally because we all know as adults, no, they all come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Some of them are disadvantaged. Some of them more than others. Some come from broken homes. But we have to teach them that they are equal in our eyes. We have to give them the perspective that equality is a perception. And the more they accept the fact that they have all the possibilities and all the potential that the other students have in the classroom, they're going to adopt that mindset. You can't change their heart unless you can get into their head and show them that you are in their heart with them. That is the number one thing about identity is they have to know you're on their side. A child can read you in an instant, and if they can't feel you, if they can't know that you're present there for them, not for you, not for the school, not for other things, they have to know that they can count on you when they're stressed, when they're, when they're hurting, when they have questions, you're going to answer them, you're going to answer them honestly. Sometimes you may have to mold your answer so that it doesn't get outside of some artificial boundaries that are put upon you but at the end of the day your identity is what they reflect out of you you have to give them the perception that you're there for them you are the rock that they can put their feet on and they can move forward comfortably without worrying about whether you're not going to be in their corner it isn't about happy sad or anything else it, it's about being there being engaged and being obvious without stating the obvious. See, I love the way you put that together because for me, you're talking about relationship, right? Walking, taking them by the hand, so to speak, and helping them and walking with them through the journey of development, of education, of life. And this to me is student engagement at its finest because you give them that vision, you give them that perspective, right? That gives them that growth mindset and it pulls them away from the fixed mindset that a lot of times can be an implicit bias, right? But I believe when you begin to pull them from fixed mindset, I can't do this or I feel defeated to more of a growth mindset, then you give them a better experience. And so I love the way you put that together because to me, what you said was a major toolkit for student engagement. And a lot, and a lot of times we gotta go back to the basics. The basics are relationship. When you have that relationship with a student and they trust you and you've, you've proven to be trustworthy, 
with that comes confidence and they and comes confidence because they have confidence in you now because you are consistent and you're committed and you're disciplined and you have and you have been with them throughout the beginning stages of their journey so you know i, I love the way you put that together and we need facilitators to begin to add these tools and if they have these tools already begin to use them again you know take them out the toolbox right dust them off sharpen them up so to speak and and begin to use this again you know because because of COVID-19 now the way we look at relationship has changed so you know we are the pioneers of this new awakening of this new awakening in education right because this is something totally different this is a totally different type of relationship now and so we need strong facilitators such as yourselves to engage students for success you know that's a perfect segue uh, to our next panelist who i'm so so uh, excited uh, for him to be back on Impact Education Leadership, and that is uh, Mr. Rick Belay. Please say hello to the people and tell us a little bit about you know what you're doing currently, sir. Well, my name is Rick Belay. Uh, I am in my 17th year of teaching, uh, eight years in Pennsylvania, and I'm in my ninth year here in Texas. Uh, that will probably play into our conversation at some point tonight. Uh, so I have some experience in terms of dealing with students. Uh, I also help not only students get their voice figuratively and literally since I teach music, but I also am a factor in educators trying to get a voice because I am the president of Colleen Educators Association and also of Texas State Teachers Association Region 10. So I help represent over 3,700 educators across Central Texas. First of all, thanks again for having me on. Uh, and I'm going to uh, springboard off of that very excellent piece of information that uh, Buddy just gave and, 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 and focus in on one of the things that he said was that you have to present yourself to all of these kids at the same time. And that's very true, but it's also not as imposing as it necessarily sounds because each of those kids are going to automatically interpret your words in their own way because they are unique individuals even if they have not, as Buddy very aptly mentioned, gotten a full dose of experience in the world yet. They're still going to already automatically form their own opinions uh, of you while you do that. With regards to how you identify those things, there's no set model or, or strategy that necessarily works. But what I've found is that whether it's a child or an adult, there tends to be three things that happen with any successful positive relationship with a person. And that is assessment, engagement, and then follow through. So when it comes to assessment, I tend to think of things in terms of, you know, those are any sort of ways that you gather impressions from your student, whether that is any of the nonverbal cues that you can do, uh, facial expression, response with their eyes, uh, you can get it through their work if you have them writing about something, 
uh, or how they sing, how they react, how quickly they engage with you, various ways, whatever way you can use uh, that is, you know, a positive way for you to glean that information and assess that information, then you do that. You'll find those positive traits and you find those things that make you go, yeah, I like that. The next step would be engagement. And that is what I would view as a building process where you are using those positive traits that you see and, and help reinforce them so that the child can learn to depend on them as a solid indicator of, okay, I'm all right. I'm doing this okay. I'm worth something. I am contributing something that is positive to my environment that's around me, right? Not only as individuals, but also in the collective as well. The follow-through comes in maintaining those things and the deflection or reflection or refraction, you can insert whatever you know, term you wish there, of potential toxic and negative traits that would threaten to undermine those. So that the positive growth is the thing that occurs. And again, children are going to do this in their own individual way, no matter what you know. You know you're going to present yourself in a certain way. There's only one of you. There may be 15, 20, 30 kids in a room that are listening to you, or more, because musicians tend to deal in larger groups. But those people are going to still listen to you, and they are still going to form their own personal opinion without consulting anybody else. And then in some way, shape, or form, they're going to show you that opinion. They're going to demonstrate that to you in some form, either verbal or nonverbal. And then you are finding that and sensing that, detecting that, that information, assessing it, and then engaging with it and following through with it to create this, this cycle of positive growth. Totally love that answer. I totally love that answer. Yeah, because you're talking about development, and de- development has many, it's multifaceted. So I, I totally agree with that. You know, uh, that's a perfect segue, by the way, to my next question. Uh, to Buddy Thornton, the Positive Social Change Agent Pro. Uh, Mr. Thornton, with, your, with the enormous amount of research that's out there already, right, there's still numerous blind spots, uh, numerous fallacies, if you will, and definitely uh, different biases, right, because no one's going to see the same. No matter how uh, united we become, there's still going to be people that's going to see something totally different at a totally different angle, right? And so with that being said, and with all the amounts of literature and research that's out there, my question to you is, in mentorship, where do you fit in as the positive social change agent pro. Well, before I answer your question, I want to do one addendum to uh, what Rick said. When it comes to the environment that we are teaching anybody, adults, children, I don't care, it takes you back to the proverb that the last, the last entity that understands water is a fish. The only way they understand water is if you take them out of it. 
if you don't focus on the different mediums uh, with which you are having to teach, especially in a stressed environment like COVID, if you don't make it an issue, the kids are more than likely not going to make it an issue. They, for the most part, are going to take their cues off of you if you treat it is a normalized situation, and you enforce that by your actions and your words and your facial expressions, they are going to follow suit, and there's no reason why the majority of kids can't learn in any learning environment, as long as you don't focus on the woe is me scenario. But in answer to your question, in mentorship, where do you fit in as a positive social change agent pro? Well, first of all, you have to take ego off the table. If you're a mentor and someone has picked you to be their mentor, that means that they already have a level of respect for you. But you need to dignify their choice by taking your ego off the table. The worst thing you can do is let your ego get involved in the equation. To be an effective role model, you have to make sure that you're modeling behavior that they will be able to mimic and learn from. Universal positive regard is a good example. When I'm teaching, I'm not giving answers. I'm specifically using Socratic teaching methods where every time they ask me a question, I gently prod them toward their own knowledge and their own answer. And if they don't, if they really don't have the answer, I will give them the tools, the resources, and the research uh, capability to find the answers, but I'm not going to just spoon feed them the answers. I want them to be involved because as a mentor, as a coach, and especially as a positive social change agent, you have to understand that people have a lot more regard for themselves when they achieve something through their own work. My ideology is if one fails, they didn't fail, I failed them. So I reverse the equation. I take the ego off the table and I try to find any method possible to make sure that what is needed in the relationship, whatever I'm teaching, whatever their goal is, whatever their mindset is, whatever their focus is, I'm going to help them find the answer instead of give them the answer so that at the end of the day, they can stand up and say, this is what I did. There's no reason for me to be in their picture. They need to be able to know that they achieved it on their own. Yes, I might have had some small hand in it. I might have given them a roadmap. I might have given them a little guidance. But at the end of the day, I take a lot more pride in the fact that they had the persistence and the drive and the motivation to get where they were going to go because it can't ever be about me. If you're going to drive positive social change, it has to be about Society. Society is way more important than one person. So where do I fit in? I fit in as a tiny little voice in the corner saying, you got this. And not only do you got this, but you really got this. When you hear a response like that, oftentimes you have to just pause and just ponder on what you just experienced. That was a phenomenon, what you said. And it's going to take me, I'm going to have to go back and listen to that and listen to that and chew on that and chew on that some more. 
you know, I was taking some some mental notes and I had to write down some things because I really want to hone in on what you just gave us. For me, what I received was developing communication skills. I, I also got establishing and maintaining healthy relationships. Of course, I've got developing growth mindsets to fit each of your students, each of your mentees. But the apex of what I got was teaching your, your mentees or your students how to develop self-determination. And this self-determination will help them build strength and that will help them to begin to start turning challenges into opportunities. You know, I really, really, I'm gonna have to go back, I'm gonna have to go back and listen to that over and over again, what you said and what Rick said, because Rick was talking about adjusting, uh, he was talking about bringing in uh, the students by assessing them and then engaging and then following through to check their their stages of development. And so this was, to me, just a soliloquy. <laughs> this was this was music. This was. I don't think it can get better than this. You know, I think we should just just stop the show right now and <laughs> let the music play. But no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> I would not be doing justice to the next speaker because Rick, I want to challenge you because that was that was that was kind of hard to come after. It's it's, it's kind of hard to follow up after that, but I know you can do it. So my question to you is, how do you measure your learner's success? And I know you talked about it a little bit, but kind of give us uh, a more in-depth perspective about how you go into development of your, your child's uh, competency, I guess, right? And their confidence. Uh, to help them become more successful uh, in their in, in their learning. So what Buddy said ties into an old saying that speaks of bad leaders being reviled, good leaders being praised, but the best leaders being the ones who the people say that they did it themselves. Um, it's it's a type of servant leadership that I agree with Buddy 100% is absolutely the pinnacle uh, in terms of teaching because it is self-realization, self-actualization, and self-ownership of their learning. With that said, the biggest indicator of how that happens is one word, and that word is change. That change can take many, many forms, and it's one of the reasons why the Socratic method of questioning that Buddy stated is so effective because it allows the person to formulate that scaffold of learning in their own mind. And so that change isn't necessarily just data-driven like you hear some people uh, advocate for today. Uh, it's also in terms of 
sometimes struggle. You know, change is not something that is always easy. Change is something that can be very difficult because it forces you to confront things that you don't necessarily want to confront, uh, truths that you may necessarily not have agreed with in the beginning. And so, you know, or just stretching your mind in, into directions that you're not used to in, in considering new things that you had previously not even thought about or had maybe even dismissed. So, you know, change, struggle is, is one way. Um, discussion and, and what I would call, say, tempering uh, would be another. You know, where you, you deliberately examine your, you know, your experiences. You deliberately examine questions that people, you deliberately, that people pose to you, excuse me. You, you deliberately examine your beliefs and question them and consider the ideas and the new thoughts and the contributions that people set before you. One of my prized statements, I guess if you could call it that, is that we as individuals are amalgamations of every single person that we come in contact with. What makes us individual are the pieces that we take from every single person that we meet, every single person that we come in contact with, every single person that we are exposed to automatically creates some sort of change in us. And how we show that change and how we manifest that change is an indicator of how we have learned and how we have changed. So, you know, how that you measure that knowledge, that change that, or success, if you want to call it success, because sometimes that success is failure, right? In terms of, you know, for say Edison, you know, why did you, why did it take you 10,000 times to make a light bulb? And he replied, I didn't take 10,000 times. I just found 9,999 ways that didn't work. You know, and so that process, sometimes not always a success, but failures that build the bridge to success are ways that you can define success. But you will know that success because you will see that pride of ownership, that pride of learning, that pride of accomplishment, that pride of achievement that takes place in a person when they hit that moment. You know, this conversation is so good. I feel like I'm at a bakery and I feel like we just made a cake, a spice cake. And, you know, each of your, your comments were different ingredients that went into the mix. And, you know, Buddy, the positive social changes a pro, he put he put his flavor in the mix. And then Rick Boulay, he put his flavor in the mix. And then we begin to stir this thing up. And then we, we put it in the oven and it started getting heated, right? We're still in the oven now because now I'm about to ask, I'm about to ask you a question. I'm about to ask you to tell us, the listening audience, uh, a personal, a personal story and it could be about you or it could be about one of your mentees, a family member, but where your coaching saved someone's, where your coaching actually saved someone's life. Who wants to go first? 
Well, I say I'll dive right in here uh, because I wanted to addendum one thing uh, that ties into my story about empowerment. When I was learning and I was going through the process of shifting from being a mediator who handled conflict after the fact to someone who really focuses on stopping conflict before it happens, one of the people that I dealt with the most, my mentor, said that I needed to understand the word influence. Teachers, mentors, coaches, that's the only thing we have, influence. At the end of the day, yes, we all put a product out. We have data that we can give. We have information and knowledge we can give. But we are tied to how much influence we can give to our students. And the only three outcomes to, to influence are conflict, conformity, or commitment. And my mentor said, conflict is the best conduit because it allows you to give another person the dignity of expressing their alternate opinion and then working toward a common answer. You never want to settle for conformity. You always want to get commitment. I had a, a person who worked for me and he worked for me for 18 years and he ran into some stumbling blocks and he lost his first wife from a, a very uh, strange situation. She was in the backyard playing with her dogs and he walked out and she was simply laying on the pool deck and she was gone. God had come and taken her. And he didn't know what to do, where to go. He needed someone to guide him. And the only thing I could do at that point was A, lean on the relationship, be a friend but be a coach and a mentor at the same time. And I had to let him know that, you know, all of the trials and tribulations of being a human are all tied up in loss. And he needed to commit to honor her and respect her by moving forward and taking care of their common child. They had one daughter and be the best person he could be despite his loss, despite his pain. And it took a little bit of time, but by modeling understanding and modeling that you have to get through whatever stress is in your environment, it doesn't matter, the, the loss of a loved one, COVID-19, any type of social stressors that you have to deal with, you still have to make the choice to move on, to commit, because you can't settle for conflict. And nobody wants to be the minimalist. No one wants to just be tied to conformity. I'm not going to be like everybody else who's lost somebody. I'm not going to tie myself to victimology. And to his credit, he picked up the pieces. And a few years later, he got remarried. Had a very, very wonderful family environment. It never would have happened if there hadn't been somebody that he could look at and at least get some type of a human thread from. And that's the common thing that happens every time a teacher takes a child who is lost or confused, maybe a little bit sad, has a problem, and they take the time to let the relationship and the love that's in their heart bind them to that child and give that child a conduit to grow 
because that's the only thing that matters. It's the small little successes. It's not the big successes. If people hinge on the big successes, they're looking way, way, way off the map. It's got to be the little successes. That's what we have to strive for. Rick, please, you're next. When you're talking about empowerment, you are talking about the ability, as, as Buddy so adequate, uh, eloquently stated, about that commitment to change. Uh, I read in one of my, my favorite sci-fi books that change is easy once a person commits to it. And getting someone to understand that change is sometimes, you know, a hard thing either in terms of the intensity of the problem or in terms of the time frame. Um, I've had a couple of cases where people have called me on the phone and said that, you know, they were so frustrated they didn't know how they could go on. Um, but, you know, even those temporary empowerments are, are, are good, but the empowerment truly that makes a difference is the one that you can put in that gets that commitment to change over time. Uh, and, and the story that, that comes to my mind is of a, uh, a former student that when I started teaching, um, he and I simply just did not get along. He didn't like me at all. And um, he frustrated me in terms of uh, his stubbornness, his unwillingness to, to, to listen, to, to work to understand, you know. And he was a teenager, and so, you know, part of that has rolled into that. And over the years that I was around this person, uh, I noticed that he, he settled in, he would crack a joke around me, and he would occasionally come and ask me for some advice. Uh, a couple of years after he graduated high school was the point in Pennsylvania where uh, the school board had made a decision to, to cut positions. And my name was on that chopping block. And so I had put out a call for anyone because obviously didn't want to lose my job put out a call for anyone to write a letter of support. And I gave this packet of letters of support to the members of the school board at a school board meeting. To my surprise, one of the people that wrote a letter was this former student. And in that letter, he detailed a story pretty much like how I had laid it out that, you know, he didn't like me, didn't like how I worked, didn't like how I operated, didn't like, you know, the fact that if he did something wrong, I was there to say, you probably don't want to do that. And then in that letter, he wrote, you know, along the way, I started noticing things about Mr. Belay. He was always there. I, when I went to him to ask him some questions on things, he didn't hold the fact that I had you know, flouted him and, and argued with him against me. He answered my question. And he helped me work until I got, you know, I had figured out how to do the answer. If I had a question about anything, I could found that I could go to him and he would be there. 
And I began to realize that he wasn't the issue that I was. And so I began to understand and respect him for who he was and how he was and the fact that he was there for me. Um, probably one of the most powerful things that I've ever seen somebody write about me. Uh, and it made me feel very empowered. Because like it or not, whether they say it or not, those are things that teachers need to recharge their batteries. Those are things that educators need, you know, that recognition that what they're doing helps make a difference because teachers need empowerment, educators need empowerment just as much as their students do. Uh, and so that was a case of where that former student's empowerment was also my empowerment. <laughs> because, you know, even though I did lose my job that night, uh, because they did cut all the positions they said they were going to, um, there was still a lot of outpouring of support in the community that I was gratified and empowered to hear. One word to describe tonight's discussion as it relates to coaching all students to go 100 to be God, and that word is long-suffering. It's long-suffering because teachers don't have the most glamorous job. And we do face challenges with different students. And so that, that fruit of long suffering comes to play in our lives, sometimes on a daily basis. And so we need conversations like this that are refreshing, that are refueling, that speaks to the core, right? And it goes to that place where a lot of times we have voids or we feel empty. We feel like we can't share or be transparent because let's face it, who wants to hear a whining teacher, a complaining teacher? And so this conversation tonight brought nutrients and I want to thank both of you esteemed gentlemen for sharing this conversation with me and with the listening audience. And I love you for that. I love you for that. Tonight has been another impactful night of the impact of educational leadership. This is episode 70. I'm so grateful to share this moment with you and the panelists tonight, which are Rick Bollet and Buddy Thornton, the Positive Social Change Agent Pro. Good night.